Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by Philip Reed, who's the managing partner at Helm Investment Partners. They're an emerging markets manager, but they're a little bit different than a group that just surfaces the normal emerging markets indexes. They specialize in dealing with distressed countries and seeking out disorder. Welcome aboard, Philip. Thanks for having me, Fraser. Pleasure. So as I mentioned in the preamble, you're a little bit more than just someone who looks at indexes and sort of canvases across the whole world for opportunities and gets a little bit of exposure in a lot of places. Before we get into your process a little bit, maybe give us a little bit of insight as to where you came from and what your background is. And I think that'll help to inform uh, the decision-making process you all go through with your firm. So I'm half British, half Brazilian, brought up in Brazil most of my life, finished my school in the UK, came back, eventually went to Stanford, California. So I spent quite a bit of time overseas, but also quite a bit of time in Latin and emerging markets. And professionally speaking, I did get to see a very large sort of share of what we call dislocations. Now, after the background, we can get into how the dislocations came to shape what we do today. And as part of your background and your experience, before you launched your fund, what did you specialize in or how did you cut your teeth? You know, it's a good question. There's certainly a lot of teeth cutting there. <laughs> I basically started off at an old school uh, emerging markets investment house called Garantia Bank in Sao Paulo. There was actually the bank that was founded by the 3G Capital founder, Swiss Brazilian, Jorge Paulo Lemon. And that was really the first time that I got to experience what we call recovery investing, crisis investing, depending on how you want to define it. I then went on to McKinsey and Company did my analyst program there, went to Stanford Business School, came back, landed at Goldman uh, doing banking in Latin America. I was then hired by Marathon Asset Management, New York-based hedge fund to run their Brazilian operations, and then eventually joined Tarpon as a partner, which was one of Brazil's largest independent long-only investor funds. And there was several years of teeth cutting that led me to where I'm right now, but I'm sure you're going to ask about that in a second. <laughs> That's right. Just a quick thing before we talk about the firm, half British, half Brazilian. You've obviously got Portuguese in your toolkit. What other languages do you traffic in and how has that helped your ability to source opportunities and otherwise be aware of problems? Unfortunately, I do not speak Chinese or Arab. I wish I did, but I do speak Spanish quite well. I actually lived in Salamanca during my studies. I did think that Spanish was very, very important too. For someone that was doing business and living Latin. So there was definitely an important sort of skill to have to basically navigate countries like Mexico, Venezuela, Argentina, Chile, which I did, and you know, I do quite intensely still. So before we get into exactly what your firm does, you had a broad array of, I would say, really high-end experiences learning about how businesses operate, how to manage assets at a more 30,000 foot scale, and a little bit more on just being able to see broader arrays of, of opportunities from a geographic perspective. Before we get into your firm, what does a typical emerging markets manager do? And I think if you talk to a lot of United States investors, I think 
you may get a lot of different answers to that question. What is it you see in the overall bandwidth of the space that is typical in terms of an emerging markets manager? I think it's a great question. And I think it speaks to the way that the whole asset management industry is structured worldwide, not only in emerging markets, but also in developed markets, i.e. the United States. So allocators, they're basically managing real money accounts, pension funds, endowments. They allocate money to managers. And basically, not only on EM, but also in the US and in Europe, it's all about specialization. So allocators allocate money to a long, short US firm because that's what the firm has been doing forever. And it works the same way for EM. So yeah, a Canadian pension fund, for example, will allocate capital to a Brazil dedicated manager or a Chinese dedicated manager or an emerging markets dedicated manager, for the matter, with the assumption that specialization and depth almost alone drive returns. We happen to disagree wholeheartedly about that assumption. I'm not sure if you want to ask me something before we proceed, but I'd love to get into that as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I think part of that is the question the asset allocation decisions, it's almost like there's a skipping of steps there. You say, okay, I want to be in emerging markets, and then you jump straight to specific countries. And I find it hard to believe that the expertise to choose those countries is in place from an allocation perspective. Am I sort of framing that correctly? Or is that something that's in place at a lot of larger asset management firms, or even better put, asset allocating investors like pension funds? I think you're absolutely right on. I think the assumption is that the allocator will do his or her allocation. So we'll decide how much cash he or she wants to hold up in Canada or in any other place. And we'll also decide how much capital to have in Latin America or how much capital to have in Asia and how much capital to have elsewhere, right? Which I think no matter how great one's allocator's team might be, I think it's a questionable assumption that someone has so much knowledge or cognitive power as to allocate beautifully well capital all over the world. And I think if I can dig it a bit deeper, one of the assumptions also that once an allocation has taken place, let's say someone in Canada has allocated capital to call it Brazil for the matter. The assumption is that, and I think that actually Ashmore in a way was probably the first firm that actually made this concept more mainstream. The concept being Capital needs to be allocated to emerging markets because emerging markets will emerge, meaning in several different metrics, be it credit penetration or educational levels or demographics for the matter, they will converge to where developed markets are today. And by doing that, there will be more growth and that growth will translate into returns, equity returns or fixed income returns, so on and so forth. So that was the assumption. People needed to allocate capital to emerging markets with the assumption that by emerging, emerging markets would generate returns and it would justify what we call a strategic allocation. So basically be invested in Brazil, in India, in Russia, in Mexico at all times for a long term basis. And I'm afraid to report that when you look at the data, this couldn't make less sense from the return generating standpoint. Holding capital in emerging markets has been an up and down roller coaster. And so for those allocators that have sort of looked at it and said, we project returns to be whatever, let's say 10% over the course of seven years, 12 years, 20 years, the road to seven or 12% is extremely rocky. And therefore that throws their allocations around. Maybe some of them are smarter 
or they've built that in and the volatility is acceptable. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you choose poorly in one of the countries, you not only get volatility, you get sharp downward volatility and sometimes permanent downward volatility. And I guess that's where your firm comes in. And you're looking at it not from a, oh, we're going to put it in this asset class that we assume is going to have a somewhat smooth uptick over the course of time, but you recognize that that downward volatility, it's not just a trend, it's a, I hate to say this because it's become trite, but it's not a bug, but it's a feature of the software. So to that end, maybe take us through to the firm and how you see the opportunity in that space. Just before I get to that, I think I'll actually agree with you. And I think the problem is not even if the allocator picks the country incorrectly. It's worse than that. I can show you, and I'm very happy to share with your audience, we have 200 years of data. And I can show you that no matter what country you pick, you're going to make money, and then you're going to lose money after making money in any one particular country. So it's worse than that. So what we do and what we have observed, beyond looking at the data from our own experience, and my partners and myself, we all have quite diverse backgrounds, very much value investor oriented, but across geographies, we have a partner who is from the Middle East, Indian from the Middle East, another one who's European, New York based, someone from New Zealand. So we all have observed, and that's how we decided to set up Helm throughout our careers, exactly what I'm describing. We have observed these incredible dislocations, so to speak, whereby we saw countrywide price decreases of 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% in Latin America, Asia, Middle East, so on and so forth. And then true to form, because, and that is very much part of what we rely on, methodologically speaking, there's, there's always, after these dislocations, these great and strong recoveries. So in a way, you have this very, very reliable mean reversion. And I know people have all sorts of problems with mean reversion. So do I. Because a mean reversion in relation to a single asset, I think, is a highly questionable concept. But when you take a mean reversion on a countrywide basis, it works 99% of the time. I can cite Cuba or Venezuela as the big exceptions to the rule. But what we have observed throughout our careers is that these countries, make no mistake, they will go up, they will go down. And after going down, they will come up again. And what we do by basically focusing on these very, very specific circumstances, we try to find incredible sources of value with a lot of margin of safety. But we only get involved, and that's something that we can probably talk in a bit more detail, when and if there is already price stabilization. So we don't want to get involved in the crisis. We want to get involved in the recoveries. So you're looking for crisis conditions. You're looking for cars that have lost a wheel in many cases. What does a crisis look like for you? And to that end, you're looking for troubled situations. How do you quantify trouble? The only thing that I would slightly correct you is that we're actually looking for great cars. <laughs> we're not looking for cars without wheels. We're looking for Ferraris and Lamborghinis that happen to be in bad neighborhoods. Ah, okay. I tell you what we're not. We're not at all distressed investors. On the contrary, we value investors that buy great businesses, great franchises that are thriving. So we're not buying companies that in a moment in time is having some sort of difficulty on the country. These companies, the companies that we invest in are always thriving. They happen to be in a country that is being completely derated or downgraded from the valuation standpoint. So basically what we're talking about, we're talking about a 
call it Argentina or Mexico or in India or Russia, when the market's gone down by at least 50% in US dollars. So that is the first criteria to quantify what we call a dislocation. So all that does is that basically focuses our attention. We say, okay, when a country has gone down in terms of asset prices by at least 50%, and you can be talking 50, 60, 70, 80%, we're gonna basically, what we did before COVID, we just fly down and we spent several weeks back and forth, back and forth to try to understand the second step. The first one is valuation. The second step is what we call a narrative. We need to understand whether there is a narrative of a change in perception. So let me tell you what we're trying to get to. We're trying to invest in a country, Greece, for example, in a moment when people absolutely hate the Greek story. And we're trying to capture a narrative that will justify a slight, not a major, a slight improvement in perception. So we're going to buy Greece when people absolutely despise Greece. And we're going to sell Greece when people, they still think Greece kind of sucks, but in nowhere, shape or form, Greece will have recovered at all. You're going from maybe just a notch or two above apocalypse conditions and then looking to exit five notches or six notches above apocalypse conditions. That's exactly right. And the reason being is that in those very, very specific circumstances, one, that's when the really large forceful rallies and returns take place. And two, and that is very, very important, and that's really behind the reason as to why we decided to set up Helm, is the lack of competition. When we fly down to Greece or to Turkey, when it's two notches above apocalypse, as you mentioned, not even the brokers understand what the heck we're doing there. And people literally look at us and they say, why are you here again? Please <laughs> explain. And that basically means that the locals, they are completely dormant. They're normally, they have been suffering redemptions. They're normally paralyzed. They think their own countries are about to end. It happens every single time. So we get to these places and we normally buy from the local themselves. We buy from the dedicated asset managers themselves. And I know that for a fact because I used to be a dedicated Brazil manager. And the ones, the people that came during these sort of post-crisis or on the way up through the recoveries were the George Soros's of the world from New York City. They would buy from us and then they would sell back to us at three times the price 18 months later. So once again, we look at these really, really, really distressed valuations. We look very importantly for a narrative that would justify a change. And by the way, let me just step back for a second. Normally, we're not necessarily looking for, we're not betting on reforms being implemented or there being a changing government per se. So we're not macro investors per se. All we're looking at, right? We're looking, we're normally we're looking at situations that not because of the leaders, but despite the leaders being who they are, the country normally would have been run to the ground so badly that the country and the government, they are forced against all odds, they are forced to do a few good things. And those few good things are enough to change perception. I can give you many, many examples, but I think perhaps the more exaggerated one is Greece. Greece ended up Alexis Tsipras, who was a left-wing prime minister until last year. He was elected in, in 2015. He threatened to take Greece out of the euro, take the country back to the drachma from the euro. At some point in time, he had run the country to the ground so badly that eventually he had to be bailed out 
by the European Union and the IMF, the so-called Troika. And despite being who he is, not because of who he is, he ended up implementing 412 structural reforms in Greece, having become the biggest liberal reformers in the history of Europe, besides being a left-wing populist. So those are the sort of conditions that we're looking for. So we talk about countries like that. And one of the things I would imagine investors are worried about is how do you distinguish between a 50% down in market value in a market slash company versus a 50 to 80% degradation in the currency on the theory that the currency itself is going to have trouble snapping back. I think a lot of people feel like they've been burnt over the years with currency traps that just never happen and defaults, et cetera. How do you think about that? We normally rely on the, once again, the historical pattern that 99% of the time, there's actually just one main exception, which is Russia in 1998, because the ruble is obviously oil dependent. So, but other than that, in 99% of the cases, whenever we're investing in a really cheap equity market, the odds are the currency will be incredibly depreciated and cheap as well. So by buying an asset in Turkey, when the lira is north of eight, you're making money if you get the thesis right, the narrative is right, so on and so forth. And then I, I can obviously talk about the assets that we buy as well. You're going to make money on both ends. You're going to make money on the equity going from really cheap to less cheap. And you're going to make money on the currency going from incredibly depreciated and stressed to being more fair value. And again, it sounds like what you're saying is you're not expecting the currency to get back all the way to normal. You're going from apocalypse to eh, and that increases where you get the extra leverage on your return. Exactly right. And I think you've mentioned a point that is very important. We're not going to wait for the currency to revert all the way back to normal because once again, once we feel that we have captured those sort of post-dislocation rallies that happen over and over again, we exit normally. I can explain to you how we exit, but I mean, we exit because from that forceful rally on, conditions once again stabilize, and then the local manager ends up once again recovering and having a specialization edge or a competitive advantage after the crisis. So during the crisis and from apocalypse to a little bit better, as I mentioned, the locals tend to do very poorly, but after those rallies take place, then it once again becomes a locals game. Really cool. So the next step is, okay, let's say you've sort of hammered out a couple of theses and you've picked a country. And obviously, you're probably not inclined to go and buy that country's ETF because that's not what you do. And there are winners and losers that are going to be in there. How do you then implement your thinking around the narrative and invest in specific companies? And I guess Sort of what areas do you focus on once you do that? Great question. And this is really our bread and butter. That's what we did 20 years prior to setting Helm up, which is we really look for the best franchises, the strongest cash flows, the companies with the greatest barriers to entry, the best management teams, the governance. Normally, we tend to stick to five industries, retail, consumer, power generation, telco and banks. Normally, that's probably 90% of our investing because that's where we find the predictability of cash flows, the barriers to entries, so on and so forth. And as you said, the reason why it's really, really important to do that is because, as you can imagine, 
right after these crises, some companies recover way better than others. Companies that have too much leverage or too much debt or poor balance sheets oftentimes would not recover at all. Oftentimes might even go bankrupt. So we obviously we pay a lot of attention to the companies, in particular to the balance sheets, to basically avoid buying value traps. And I think, frankly, by sticking to these great companies, these great franchises, these really good sound stories, remember, right? We're not buying three-wheel cars. We're buying thriving Ferraris. We're buying great, great companies that happen to be in a bad neighborhood. By doing that, we have historically been able to generate two to four times as much as the country ETF. So think there's a lot of better after these dislocation recoveries, but we actually compound way, way higher than that by selecting the great stories, the great companies, the good management teams, as we've done as value investors our whole careers. So the prototypical active management going on here, and as with any sort of active management program, timing is a big part of what leads to success. And as we've sort of indicated, you have to be right twice. You have to kind of pick two notches above the apocalypse, and then you have to pick five or six notches above the apocalypse. How do you avoid being too early? And then not everything is going to be a smooth upward trend once you invest. How do you protect against those toe stubs that inevitably happen between the beginning of your ownership of a stock and the ultimate exit of it? Fraser, you've absolutely nailed it. I think there's one sin that we cannot afford ourselves to commit in what we do is getting in too early. And the reason is, I mean, no investor would like to be early in any thesis. If you're buying Google in the United States and you're a bit early, I'm not even sure that it actually applies to Google, but if it did apply to Google, you might lose three, four, five percent. Whereas if you get in early when these dislocations are still taking place and the markets have not stabilized, you might have drawdowns that are orders of magnitude larger than 2 or 3%, more like 30 40%. So what I described to you until now, steps one, two, and three, market valuations, a narrative, and the actual assets that we buy, these are what we call the fundamental pillars of our investment process. And the fourth one, which is as important as the others, is more what we call the risk management right pillar of our investment process, which basically has as its basically aim and objective to avoid getting in too early. So what we do, we basically build our positions incrementally. Let's say I want to have an 8% position in a Greek utility company. We're going to buy that normally in three to four tranches of equal size. But more importantly, beyond being incremental, and remember what we do, we only buy on price strength. We only buy when prices are going up. And people say, well, but you said you're a value investor. How can you reconcile these two things? And it's very easy to reconcile because we're buying things at one times earnings. In the case of banks, we're buying banks at five, six, seven percent of book value. You're literally talking 90% discount to most people you probably interview, the long value investors all over the world. So you're buying things virtually at zero. So what we do, we're very happy to leave the first 20, 30, 40, 50% on the table to have an investment thesis being de-risked. So we basically, we say it doesn't matter how much we like our thesis and how much conviction we have. By the way, we don't really believe in conviction as an investment concept. We prefer humility. So no matter how much you like our thesis, if the market doesn't really confirm our thesis by allowing for prices to move up, we're not going to make money. 
we basically wait for this price confirmation by having increasing prices. And when prices go through some, in our opinion, some metrics that actually show some sort of price strength, call it certain number of days breakouts or through moving averages, all we're trying to gauge is, is there market confirmation that the falling knife is no longer falling? So that is very, very important to us. So only when we see very clear indications that prices have stabilized are now going up because we're buying things at zero or very, very cheaply anyway, we're willing to leave 30% on the table and buy on the way up incrementally. Obviously, as you just mentioned yourself, there might be several false starts. Things don't go linearly up. So we're bound to find you put our first trade on, things move against us. We're not smart enough. The market doesn't like our thesis. We get out of the way. We never, ever stay when the truck is coming against us. We don't want to be heroes. We don't want to pick the bottom. We get out of the way. We have very clearly defined ways of getting out of the way. So we do get out of the way and we wait because we've done. We follow pillars one, two, and three on the fundamental basis. I still love to own 8% of the Greek utility company. So we wait for the next price breakout or the next proxy of price strength to get back on the trade. And we're going to do that incrementally once again. So we do follow a very well-structured, very rigorous and disciplined risk management process to allow us to both deploy capital on winning positions and getting out when the market is telling us it doesn't like our thesis. Interesting. So very logical process. It sounds like you've got a bit of a ratchet involved so that as you move up, you try to lock in some gains without falling back too far. And then you just move up the staircase as the case may be. So you've got two real, in my opinion, two axes of active management here. You're making some real choices as far as country selection within the emerging market space. And then you're making some real choices at the company level within that country and set of countries in order to implement that. That is probably very far away from many of the different indexes that cover emerging markets. My guess is, is that many allocators sometimes have trouble finding what box to put you in. How do you think investors should think about your success in your investment implementation? And I guess maybe the short question to this is, what do you measure yourself against when putting this all together? The way that we think about it, you've sort of touched on that, is that because we're investing in what we call these really idiosyncratic narratives, whatever is taking place in Turkey at some point in time, it's very different to what's happening in Mexico, what's happening in India or Brazil. So our returns have a correlation both to EM and to development. We have averaged over 20% nettle fees in the last four years. This is very, very uncorrelated to any other indexes or to EMs or developed markets. For that reason, we invest in these very idiosyncratic stories that happen not regardless, but I mean, very independently to what's taking place elsewhere. So the way that we basically talk to our LPs, to our investors, is that look at Helm, not as, so even though we tend to be in emerging markets because the frequency of these dislocations happen to be in emerging markets more than anything else, we're not the typical value investor emerging markets that we talked about. I'm not going to own a bank in Nigeria for the long term or a brewery in Mongolia for the long term or a power company in Brazil because these assets are cheap. Remember, we don't believe 
in holding assets in emerging markets for the long term, as I hopefully have conveyed. So we tell our IOPs that look at us as a strategy or as a firm that will give you exposure to very idiosyncratic stories. And when you add that exposure and this low correlation, you'll be able to, as an allocator, increase your returns and decrease your volatility and correlation. So it is not easy to tell you in which bucket we should put ourselves in, but I think it's easy to make the argument or to convey how Helm's returns would contribute and be part of an allocator's portfolio. Interesting. So we're going to wind down a little bit here in just a second, but what is the best way for people who are interested in what you're doing to find you? Well, we have a website, www.helmip.com, IP as in investment partners. We love to talk about a strategy. We feel very passionate about it. We feel passionate that we're this year number one fund out of the global fund of investments. We'd love to tell you more about our story and 10 questions you might have. Very interesting. And for listeners, I'll have that information up on the show notes. We'll conclude here with a little bit of a fun question. I'll actually have two fun questions. But the first one is, what do you like to do in your spare time? You've got such a global bent to you. You must have some pretty interesting hobbies. (laughs) I like to surf. I'm actually married to an Australian who, once again, part of the international background, I met in California. We all surf. Tracy surfs. I surf. My three kids have got a 12-year-old boy, 11-year-old girl, and Jonah, Olivia, and a seven-year-old boy, Luke. And I never gave them an option as to whether they wanted to surf. So they all surf compulsory, and I think they get in the hang of it. So that's definitely what we do most as a family. Well, that keeps them busy, and it keeps you busy too, I'll bet. (laughs) Absolutely. Make no mistake. (laughs) So final question here. Who are the two people that you would like to take to dinner and pick their brain a little bit that you haven't so far? For investing or for life questions in general? Let's go with life questions in general. I am very, very keen on Eckhart Tolle from The Power of Now, the German, I don't want to call him a guru, I don't want to call him a philosopher, but he's to me someone that's been able to translate a lot of the things that I also like to do, which is meditation and mindfulness into Western culture. So that, I think this guy has to be either a really, really boring conversation or a really fantastic one. So I'll definitely have him as one. And another one is probably Kelly Slater, true to form, the world surf champion. And the reason being, right, nothing to do with his surf, but to do with his career choices. He was the youngest world champion in the world and the oldest world champion in the world. And more recently, he's been able to develop in the last 10 years this really, really incredible wave pool technology that I think will be a multi-billion dollar market cap in no time. I even tried to invest, but I failed. I don't think they need investors, but that is definitely someone that I like to talk to very much. Oh, that's really cool. I'm not a big surfer, but I follow it a little bit. And I always remember one of my favorites was a guy named Mark Acalupo from Australia. Oh, yeah. He's the bull. And I loved his story because he was a world champion or certainly that level. And he really fell off the rails and then came back and won. And it's just one of those things that you look back, he's just, it's a really cool story and sort of you take his story and put it up against a real kind of golden boy and Kelly Slater and where he's taken his career, as you said. There's so many good stories in that space, and it's such an interesting subculture, a worldwide subculture. That's really interesting. I like that. Used to be a 
pretty bad culture, right? Surfing back in the 70s and 80s. And I think now it's become an Olympic sport. So I actually think that probably Brazil will win both gold medals. I'm not going to say mark my words, but I'm really hoping that happens. So let's see. Excellent. Philip, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. My pleasure. It was great fun. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.